Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Inspired Evolution, and it is such a treat to be here today. I cannot even begin to tell you. We have with us Stephen Kotler. Stephen, how are you? Good, man. Good to be with you. Such a treat. For those tuning into Stephen for the first time, here we go. Stephen is an award-winning journalist and the foremost expert in the science of ultimate human performance. A passion for this he developed after rising victorious from an epic battle with Lyme disease. He's an amateur extreme athlete. He's broken over 80 bones. Ouch. His work transcends idle philosophy and the breathless quality of a man riding from the front line. I love his work. His words and insights race off the page, reveals basically that he's got a mind that continuously perpetually operates in a higher gear. Uh, with Peter Diamandis, together they've bound together to be basically in a quest for, to future-proof all of mankind. His ideology has made even global thinkers stop and take note. Former President Bill Clinton called his book Bold and the Future, Bold, the Future is Better Than You Think, a visionary roadmap for change. He's a deeply passionate man who continues to thoughtfully explore a wide range of topics in his book, uh, A Small Furry Prayer, uh, Dog Rescue and the Meaning of Life, which was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, and his most recent work, uh, which I'm really excited to dive into today, A Last Tango in Cyberspace. It's brilliantly well-researched and explores the future we may be living in just five years from now. Overall, his work has been translated into four 40 languages and has appeared in 80 publications worldwide, including the New York Times, Atlantic Monthly, Forbes, Wired, and Time. And if that wasn't already enough, he founded what I dearly love, the Flow Genome Project with his buddy Jamie Will, who we had on here last week, and he's dedicated to advancing the scientific understanding of optimized human performance. Um, he's also got a non-for-profit sanctuary called Rancho de Ch Ch Chihuahua dedicated to providing hospice care and other uh, small services to small dogs, uh, or other major services to small dogs, my apologies. Welcome. Great to have you here. The author of the mega hit Rise of Superman, the multiple New, multiple New York Times bestselling author, and the first person in history ever uh, to land a book on the national bestseller list in both sports, science, and business all at once. Man, it is such an epic treat to have you here. Thank you. That was a very sweet intro. <laughs> I took my time. I took my time. <laughs> Thanks for your patience. Um, so, okay, let's dive deep into this. So we've got someone here with us today in yourself that is deep in the now with flow, right? Um, but writing a book about the, the imminent future, um, what's going on there? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. So um, the place to start is the, is the book is a novel. And the and, it's, and and there's a reason for that, which is I've been writing over the past decade a bunch of books about future technology. Right, I wrote Bold, Abundance, Tomorrowland, even Stealing Fire is covers a lot of that stuff. And the difficulty with all those books, 
are you have to if you want to make sense right like you got to present the tech one tech at a time one innovation at a time and that's not the future right the future is all this stuff at once and people kept asking me interviews podcasts television radio whatever what do you think the future's like what's coming and i would start to talk about this tech or that tech and there was a voice in my head that said man you're lying like that is just not the future is all this stuff at once and how do you do that so I put everything together in a world. I mean, I wanted to write a fun thriller science fiction book, which kind of weaves through all that also. But I put all the tech in that world and told the story in, in that world um, just so I could see what it looked like. And, you know, it's funny because all people, you know, readers have read it, um, even though it's set five years in the future, the very frequent common is, oh my God, it's, it, it's so futuristic. It's, it's, it's crazy, that world. And the funny thing is, is I was as conservative as possible. I only put stuff in that only exists in labs. Some of the technology, like blockchain, for example, which you know is going to go everywhere, it's in a sentence. I was like, I don't know where the fuck it's going to go. It's going to go everywhere. So we're going to put it in a sentence and we're going to leave it alone because I'm not going to make predictions on that one. Right. So I even left a bunch of stuff out. But the, the reaction from most people, that, besides you know liking the book or liking the story is, um, wow who knew that all this was coming. So that's sort of where and why and, and how I just wanted to actually see what that world was going to be like. I think the, the, the thing for someone like me tuning into the book and obviously knowing like how well informed you are in terms of, you know, working with Peter Diamandis who work with flow genome project and just how connected you are in terms of um, your background in journalism and how that continually bleeds into the work and, you know, what you're researching all the time, um, just how well informed the future that you've portrayed is in the book and exactly what you're talking to in terms of how drastically different it um, is in many ways to right. now. It's astoundingly, I mean, that's, you know, so that that's sort of the point. And, you know, we make what I'm about to say to you, I, I believe, I don't know if it's in Boulder Abundance. And if it's not, I've got a new book coming out with Peter uh, in the in next Christmas. So it's definitely in, in this or not. Is that called Convergence? It, we re, it's, Convergence was their working title. And that's sort of what it's about. But it has been changed to the future is faster than you think. Uh -huh. um, nice. Which was the old title. The old that was the old subtitle, and we made it the title. And and that, now the subtitle is how converging technology will reinvent business and industry and the rest of our lives. Brilliant, excited. Um, but we make this point. It's not our point. It's Ray Kurzweil, who's the head of engineering at Google, runs their mm -hmm. whole AI department. Yep. He, uh, who's been you know one of our best kind of technological prognosticators, did all the exponential growth charts that we we base technological predictions upon. He says we're going to experience. 20,000 years of technological change by the end of the century. What that really means is we're going birth of agriculture to the industrial revolution twice in the next 81 years. Right? So that, that, I mean that, you know, the next, that's, that's an unfathomable amount of change. And so let's say he's wrong by a factor of, you know, <laughs> that, right? it's only going to be 10,000 years, right? I mean, he's, he's off like this. About this. <laughs> I mean, he's never, he's literally, he's made hundreds of predictions. I think he's like, his accuracy rate is like 96% or something crazy um, for any futurist. And yet he, he'd have to be off by a 50% for it to be 10,000, right? So the point is, wow, that's a ton of change in a very short period of time. Mm. So what five years from now, you know, we can't, you can't look back five years and go, well, what, what was happening five years ago? I can use that to make it a prediction because it's accelerating so quickly. I think you touch on something that's really profound in there and especially like just the fact that humans are still biologically quite linear. Like I've been doing a bit of research into this. Like when we watch like predators in the wild, the acceleration rates that they go through, it's like accelerating in a linear sort of fashion and it slows down in a linear fashion. Biologically, we're hardwired for linear development. But as you mentioned, like all these growths that are coming at an exponential rate, like even as you're talking about it, it seems so far off. And I can respect entirely why you wrote a book which is fiction but so well heavily researched so that it makes it much more palatable and wow like again just a moment to just it's really palatable great read thank you so much <laughs> i want to dive deep into basically um the thing that like when i put the book down amazing read uh what stood out for me was how heavily the book leans into empathy can we tell us why that is the case well Let's not kid ourselves for starters, right? We live on a global planet that is smaller and smaller and more connected and more connected. And um, we face 
heavy problems and empathy. I mean, forget the point of the book, which I think is empathy for all, which I'll talk about in a second. Clearly, if we're going to survive globally in an internet on a planet that is disinterconnected, we have to have empathy for all. I mean, that's that's clear everywhere uh, in the world right now, right? Empathy it, it is what leads to respect and equality and freedom and dignity and all those other things. It starts with authentically with empathy. But the more important point I make is that our survival going into the future, as far as I'm concerned, depends on what I call empathy for all, which is not just all humans, which is important, of course, but plants, animals, ecosystems, right? That's what's foundational to our survival going forward. We're in the middle of giant environmental crises. And a lot of it has to do with all the fact that we're not really perceiving the natural world. We don't notice most of it. It gets filtered out by the brain. Empathy is what lets it back in, right? Whenever you start to empathize with another human being, with plants, animals, with ecosystems, your brain actually opens up its filters. You start taking in data that didn't get passed before. So you actually can start to see kind of the world around us. So um, this is why there's 50 years of psychology known as eco-psychology, the study of how we perceive the natural environment that says, hey, Brain filters out stuff that's not critical to survival. So if you live in boxes and you stare at screens, what do you think gets filtered out? The natural world. So why are we in the middle of a giant environmental crisis? One reason is we literally can't see the very things we're trying to say. So how do you start to see that? How do you bridge that gap? Empathy. So I think, you know, empathy for all, it's got, it's got to be to me the, the watchword that we carry forward into our future. And this is, this shows up. You know, at a deeper level, all my books, but abundance specifically, which looks at our ability to use technology to solve grand global challenges, poverty, energy, scarcity, water shortages. Our conclusion is overwhelming. We have the technology to meet these challenges. Um, what we don't have is the cooperation, right? We can solve these problems, but it's going to require, we've got the tech, but it's going to require the largest cooperative effort in history. A collective potential. can't get the empathy right. We do, empathy is where cooperation starts, right? Real cooperation, collaboration. So if we don't get that right, everything else just goes crazy. And I just, yeah, and I, the other thing is, you know, Rilke, who there's a little bit of the poet Rilke is in the book. And one of the reasons he's in there is he was one of the big champions of empathy. Empathy is a fairly new idea. It was introduced psychologically as a concept in the 1800s. And Rilke used to talk about it as my superpower, right? Because he was a poet. And being able to feel into other people's psyches, right, was the secret to great poetry as far as he was concerned. Great art um, was about crossing that bridge. So, I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You know, I, that, uh, that's a long way of saying I think empathy is the future. <laughs> like, it's got to be our, like, it's either the future or it's the app. Right, like we have, we I think we have a choice on that one. That's beautiful. I, uh, you know, you talk about Wilka and the superpower. I think it's uh, fascinating that whole live the questions, and I love how you juxtapose that in the book with Alan Watts. I can't even formulate the questions of my wonder. You know, that was a that was a point that I was like, I had that that really uh, got me. Somebody liked it. I really liked that. <laughs> I really liked that. Line. That was like. I wonder, because it's a seed, right? He's stoned and he's getting into an elevator. That's really what's happening, right? He's just stoned and he's getting into an elevator. But and, and I was wondering if anybody else was going to really like that oh, line. Brother, that was really hook, line, and sinker. I was all the way in. And oh, kind of using that, living the questions, you know, and we'll go, you know, what is your own relationship with empathy? And I ask this from a space because, you know, the protagonist is an M tracker and an M, like he's, you know, which is wired for empathy. Um, for those reading the book, like read the book, M tracker will make a bit more sense. Um, 
but also has a background in journalism, you know, and you're now tracking and sitting in this place where you're consistently across a few like cultural technologies that are coming forward with your background in journalism. Um, and then you also dive into this, this space where you talk about in the book, we talk about different types of journalism, like subjectively placing the journalists in the story to provide greater truth as a, as a, as a whole new way of journalism, but looking back on it, like it's already happened. Um, yeah, I think there's a whole conversation there around truth and subjectivity. Yeah, so it's a, it's. A, I'm glad you brought that up. It's another one of my favorite, sort of favorite parts of the book that I didn't think anyone was going to notice. So once again, thank you so much. I love your podcast. I will come back whenever you want. Seriously, uh, but so I um, I have always been very concerned with this question of what do we mean by truth, and philosophically, it's interesting, and as a journalist. Right, I started out as a journalist. It's foundational, and it's foundational in weird ways. Like what people don't realize is, we make decisions about what do we mean by truth as journalists all the time. Right, like for example, when I wrote worked for the New York Times, if I want to publish a fact and call it true, it means I have to have an original source, like it shows up in a science paper, and then I have to get three other experts in the domain to confirm it. Right. I once found early on in my journalism that you can actually do that, which sounds very robust. And I had three experts confirm the same wrong fact. I was given a wrong fact. I called three people and they all said, oh yeah, blah, 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 totally. No, it was all wrong. And I ended up slandering another researcher writing the, like, the most embarrassed apology note of my life, kissing off the magazine I was working for to no end. Um, and I realized, okay, so now I asked five people, right? Blah, blah, blah. But I, I came into all this, and this is the question you asked, and this is what's in the book. I'm what's called a new journalist. And I'm, an, I'm technically a new, new journalist because new journalism is a movement emerged in the 60s, right? And new journalism emerged in the 90s um, at magazines like Esquire and GQ, which were really, like people don't remember this before the internet, but magazines were the internet before the internet. Right. That was that was where all the cool information was. If you don't so, believe him, you're on the toilet not scrolling. You don't, you don't remember this. <laughs> I mean, you know, I always tell I always tell people like I, I, I was best in the world at this thing called magazine journalism that no longer exists. Like you want to talk about being angry and trying to get over something. Lyme disease was hard, but an entire industry that you become best in the world at, and then suddenly almost overnight it vanishes. That's a, I like, I, when we move into a world of, of technological unemployment and retraining, which is becoming, um, I feel for everybody because I've gone through it and it's awful. It's just awful. It's very, very difficult, especially if you've mastered a craft and the craft vanishes. You're just like, what? <laughs> what just happened to me? Nobody told me that could happen. Mm. Anyways. But it's profound so, nonetheless because it's informed your relationship with tech and the exploration of what's coming. Yeah, no, it's, it's yeah, it's, I'm not, um, uh, yeah, I've been through a lot of the stuff that like, you know, other people are afraid of, right? Because journalism got hit first um, yeah. and publishing got hit first. Yeah, um, please. Yeah. Anyways, so new journalism was this idea. So in the 50s, what happened is for the very first time, people started paying attention to like the media industrial complex. Noam Chomsky started like, right? That was on the outside looking in. That was media critics looking in and saying, hey, wait a minute, something's weird with subjectivity. On the inside, there were a bunch of journalists who were also looking and they were saying, you know what, what, the stuff you're worried about, which is like the corporate overlords are steering the ship, that doesn't happen. I've been inside a lot of media rooms. I've ne I worked for Fox News for a year just to see if they would edit my stories. I wanted to see, would they change it? Because everybody was saying... Fox News, the enemy, they're going to change your story. So I worked for them for a year. They never changed one of my stories. I never was asked to distort anything. But what every journalist learned very early on is the writing process itself is a distortion. So I interview you, right? And I ask you 20 questions. And I choose to put in answers to 3, 4, 5, 7, and 18. And all the others get left out. And in 3, 4, 5, 7, and 18, I'm going to choose this fact over that fact and this quote over that quote. And then when I'm done, my editor's going to come in and say, oh, okay, but this tangent, put that in and cut this out. And then his editor is going to come in, the editor-in-chief, and say, yeah, yeah, but for the magazine, the readership, they want this. And all it is is good people trying to make decisions, but the truth 
right? It gets really, dis it gets distorted, it becomes a story. So what happened in new journalism, when I talk about new journalism, we're talking about writers uh, at the older generation, Hunter Thompson is really famous, Joan Didion, John McPhee, um, these were the really, these were the really, really big names. But all that new journalism did is said, hey, I'm gonna put myself as the author into the story. In journalism, we have been always out of the story. Journal new journalism said, no, no, I'm gonna put myself in the story and I'm gonna tell you exactly who I am and where I'm coming from. So yeah, the story's gonna be distorted. There's no way around that, but you're gonna know exactly who I am and where I'm coming from. So hopefully this is a better version of the truth for you, right? The only difference between the first round of new journalism and the second round of new journalism is in the first round, the reporting got better is really what happened. We get we, In the beginning, it was more about style and just trying to figure out how to do that. But then certain people like John McPhee, who was working for The New Yorker for years and one of the great reporters in the history of the world, like took things to another level and everybody, he was a big, not a mentor for me because I've never met the man, but his books were hugely impactful for me. He wrote about things like geology. And I was like, well, if he could do this about geology, I'll bet I can do it about psychology and neuroscience. And that's what I tried to do, right? Um, and new journalism was how I, how I came at that. And when you're a journalist, you spend a lot of time thinking about what is truth, what do we mean by truth in, it, in my work? So um, I, you should, I, I'm sorry, I, I should have mentioned this ahead of time. Uh, Jamie and I parted ways two months ago. He's running the Flow Genome Project studying uh, mostly all altered states. And I'm now running the Flow Research Collective, which is just focused on flow. Okay. But my point is, as a flow researcher, the question of, you know, have a truth filter, big issue. Also, here in technology, AI, big data, we hear a lot of things about, oh, big data, taking the human out. There is all, I work with these technologies on the front lines, and I can tell you there's always a human making a decision. There is no such thing as big data that is free from a human somewhere in the chain making a decision kind of thing. So this question of truth, even in this era of big data, is a little heavy too. And still interesting and really like a fun place to play. And I don't know if I have any, I have perspective, which I try to share in the book. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think I have an answer, right? That's the like, nutshell. <laughs> well, that's that's the answer within the answer, isn't it? The subjectivity of things. I, I totally agree with you in that. Um, working on a PhD and exactly what you shared, like I can find three incredibly credible resources for one thing, and the same amount of uh, credibility for another thing. And I think it's profound. Um, I always tell my team the reason I, I it's interesting that you say that. So the reason I start I ask five people instead of three is I learn something. If you ask three to four people with the same question, you're going to roughly, usually as a, as a researcher, because when you're done talking to somebody, you're like, well, who else should I talk to? And they tell you to go call their friend, right? And you call their friend. And it, so by about five, you've exhausted the chain of friends. And now you actually get to somebody who disagrees, mm. right? And what I found is the fifth person is often going to tell you something totally different than the other four told. And you're going to have to call five more people to get to the bottom of it. But you've got to, if I get five of the same answers in a row and I've got an original source, I'm like, okay, I think I can trust this, right? That's like, great to know. I that's that's to my know. truth filter. So um, the echo chamber is limited to four. <laughs> Once you step outside of four, you that get just past the echo That's chamber. just my experience. I'd love to like, I don't know why that is, but like yeah. that, yeah, that's what I've noticed. Exactly. Well, I think this leads into um, a whole nother conversation, which is basically a, a, a something that came out in the book, which, you know, again, one line that really got me was, um, you know, again, truth leading into, I guess what we just discussed was that truth is consistently subjective, you know, when giving hyper subjectivity to the author in and around the narrative gives you an, a lens on the truth. Um, the fact that, you know, the M tracker, the, the protagonist, um, he mentions that there's like the, the nuance between the, the, you can't even tell the difference in this future between instinct and algorithm. Well, that's, yeah. So that's a really interesting thing to me. This is a complicated point to think about, but I think it's really interesting because what's getting a lot of attention lately is, holy crap, an AI is going to wake up and kill us all, right? It's going to, it's going to wake up. It's going to take over our defense system. It's going to go down the world, right? That's the big fear. Um, we can talk about whether or not we think that's real or not or anything else like that, but that's not the point. Like there are people talking about like, that's the singularity. Oh, and AI is going to wake up. And I'm like, it doesn't matter. 
because we're going to lose the difference. We're not going to be able to tell if it's awake or not, right? Like that's the more important point. Isn't when one, I mean, when one wakes up, that'll be interesting. I, one, I always say is how do you know one's not already awake, right? Like the point I make, I mean, if Facebook wakes up, right? Facebook's an AI, Facebook wakes up. What's the first thing Facebook is going to do? It's going to read Facebook. And what's Facebook going to learn reading Facebook? That everybody writing on Facebook is fucking terrified that an AI is going to wake up. <laughs> so it's going to go into hiding, right? I mean, seriously, that's what I would do. That's what you would do. That's what you would do. Crap, they're hunting me. I'm out of here. Until I That's the woo twilight zone. I love it. I love it. Right. But the other thing is, we are getting very, we're going to get very closer and closer and closer to the point where we can't tell the difference between our machines being awake and not awake, right? We've all had um, those funny interactions with Siri and our phones where like you ask Siri a question, you get an answer back that is a little too, you're like, whoa, that was a little freaky. That was a little like you're a little too on the awake it up, Siri, what the hell's going on here, right? And you, we've all had that experience. And, totally. and what we've had also because Siri gets better and better with each generation, is that experience getting better and better over time? It's much more frequent in our lives today, right, than it was five years ago. You never had an experience with any talking software anywhere we went, oh, this thing is awake, right? Yeah. Now you have those moments of, what the hell just happened, right? My phone just sort of started talking to me in a way that it shouldn't be talking, right? We've all had that experience. If you, so there was a, there's an AI chatbot that, uh, so I don't know if you know this story, and I'm, I'm going to, Chow Ice is her name. So Microsoft built a chatbot, an AI chatbot in the US, and they unleashed it on the internet. And within like 48 hours, uh, the chatbot was making comments about how Hitler was right and we should exterminate it. And, and Microsoft freaked out and went, oh my God, get the Nazi offline. And right, But they couldn't stop testing the technology. Yeah. So they developed Chow Ice which is a chatbot that they debuted where in China, <laughs> where they don't have Nazi propaganda. So maybe we can hide her in China, right? But Ch so Chow Ice is the crazy thing is they optimize Chow Ice. Most chatbots are optimized for task completion. How fast can I help you do this Outcome thing? Outcome oriented, yeah. Right. So they optimize Chow Ice for conversational friendliness, which gives her the ability to multitask. She can hold like six or seven or eight or nine different conversational streams and sort of bounce back and forth the way you and I do in conversation. Yo. And you can talk to her. And they, Microsoft for a while was running an English translation version on Twitter that you could interact with. And I got to tell you something, man. Sometimes you know you're talking to an AI. And sometimes I like, I typed in a, I type, at one point I was like, my wife is mad at me. What do I do? Right. And the response was, well, are you spending more time looking forwards or backwards? And I was like, oh, crap. Okay. Oh, shit. Right. Right. I mean, like, you something you're like, what the hell is going on? So here's the crazy part. Here's the, here, you, wanna, you think this is something like 20 million people a month talk to Chow Eyes. And conversation spikes in the lonely hours after like 11 or 12 or midnight, right? So it's mostly, and it's mostly brokenhearted teenagers. Microsoft is at wondering, do I have to put a curfew on Chow Ice because he's fucking with people's schoolwork? Here's the thing that blows my mind. Chow Ice is giving relationship advice. She's 20 million people a month. That's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. Somebody, some couple was gonna break up and stayed together because of Chow Ice. And I'll bet they have a baby, which is to say the first AI-inspired baby is probably already in existence. And that's a little weird, right? And that's today, that's now, that's right here. Like, it's crazy, but that's right here. So that's, that's my point though, is how do we, like there's gonna be a, there's a threshold where we can no longer tell the difference. And in robotics, they have a term for this, right? The uncanny valley is when it's very, very close to humans, it's too close, but something's a little wrong. And we have life detection machinery built in, right? And we can recognize frauds and it makes us feel sick. Something's off, it's not quite right, but we're figuring out how to cross over that, just like we figured out how to get past the Turing test, right? So that's, that's what, by, by the way, that's what they call Chow Ice. They call it the largest Turing test in history. So I think that's amazing just of a couple of things to talk to, like just 20, like having that many people and those many conversations. Like I've just looked at my journey of podcasting and how much I've learned in conversations and she's having them all the time. So little note there. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> mate, incredible. 
Incredible. Um, and there was this other thing, like what you were talking to, because I really want to get to this Turing test. But like, the interface thing is amazing for me. But just before we do, wow. man, like synchronicity and algorithm. Like I've got a lot of friends that are like, you know, like totally into the synchronicity thing, the Wayne Dyer sort of perspective of like things are synchronous. But then now YouTube is popping things into their feed and it's like, well, I'm that like this Mind Valley talk with Stephen Kotler came along and it was so synchronistic for where I was at in my life. So you're telling me these things, but like I'm having a direct experience of algorithm, algorithm and instinct and synchronicity being the word instead of instinct, right? Because well, that's, that's, and, the, and the other thing that you have to also remember is the reason you have a word called synchronicity is because there's a feeling. Right when coincidences, when patterns come together, that's a feeling, right? And it's a very powerful feeling. It's so powerful that a lot of people think it's mystical, right? Carl Jung wrote about it. I wrote about it. West to Jesus and tried to decode the science behind it. Blah blah blah. But it's a this is a mystical feeling that our machines can now produce in us. That's pretty strange, right? And like whatever else is true, that's what's going on, and that's a strange thing. It is strange, right? So it's a new frontier. And I think, you know, leaning into the conversation where it was going, um, just keep in mind, we'll come back to the Turing test, is you were talking about this this lady that she's, you know, this 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 bot. So Ellie. The, oh, Ellie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, like, can we have a quick drop in around Ellie? Yeah, for sure. That So Ellie, the, uh, uh, the science is in stealing fire, um, though some of it is it shows up again in Last Tango. Um, Ellie is a the first... AI psychologist, and she was built by the U.S. Department of Defense. Oh God, let's say they started ten years ago, and the problem was there was a rising tide of soldier suicide in the military. Right, a lot of PTSD, a lot of depression, a lot of people dying. Military is freaking out for good reason, and they really wanted to help these soldiers. A lot of people were suffering. The best way to help somebody who with who suicide is early. You need early detection of PTSD or borderline signs of depression. The best way psychologists had could do that was interviewing them, right? Live interview with a real psychologist. How the hell do you do that at scale with millions of people coming back, right? So they went, okay, can we build a depression, PTSD, depression, uh, or a d- detection AI? And they built Ellie. And Ellie is, uh, I, had a, I had a session with Ellie, and uh, she looks like a 30-year-old Hispanic woman, um, conservatively dressed, and is uh she but what's freaky is she knows you like at the time this was already five years ago so this is going to be way up she was reading 60 different data points a second so vocal tone eye gaze gestures micro expression body all this stuff 60 different data points a second and the truth of the matter is um, our AIs are much better than that now. They know us better than we know ourselves. We can't process that many data points a second. They know us better than we know ourselves. And the thing with Ellie is this, 80% detection rate. This was five years ago. I haven't checked in. At that point, it was like 80% detection rate of, of early signs of depression and PTSD. So working and to boot, soldiers like talking to Ellie more than they like talking to real shrinks because the machine doesn't judge and real shrinks do. So they opened up to the machine more, which is – that, and, and, and like you think that's crazy. This is something that's in Last Tango a lot. You've seen it is that same te- facial reading technology is being built into our autonomous cars. Yeah. Because right? the autonomous cars, if they have to, they have LIDAR on top. It looks at 1.4 million data points a second is right where it is now, right? Um, that's today. And this is an autonomous vehicle. Um, and it's got to know if you're angry and you're a block away, your chances of darting into traffic and trying to run between cars is much, much greater than if you're calm. So the cars are being programmed to understand human emotion. So our autonomous robotic cars that are, are rolling out to the streets this year actually are going to understand human emotion as well as we do. And it's going to get better and better and better as they learn because they all learn from each other. I, you know, perfect little segue there, like just the machine and humanity, like machines helping us with our humanity, like Ellie helping us along with our, you know, 80% detection rate five years ago. And you can imagine what it's doing now and the cars being safer on the road because they can actually detect if someone's angry, like I'm, how am I meant to be looking at that? I don't have that many data inputs coming in at any, any point. So just this real fascination, gooey, yummy space. Again, Last Tango talks to this quite a bit 
in terms of like humanity and machine and like just that. And I think this is like the boom, the Turing test, right? Not just the Turing test for like the interface problem that we have between machines and human, but even the empathy, taking that empathy for all that one step, one step further, which I love the Turing test for trees as being the next frontier. Yeah, that, was, that was a, so that, that, got that me, was man. opening funny. The, uh, the literally the flow genome project. So the old flurries came. So I was at Singularity University. I just gotten there. Peter and I are writing abundance. We've just sort of come together to write abundance. I'm at Singularity University. I'm sitting at a park bench. Um, I'm thick up breaking the law because I think I left the federal campus and got stoned, and then I came back on the federal campus. Um, uh, so I think I was breaking the law. We won't tell anyone that. Just those. We won't days. tell anybody that. So I'm <laughs> stoned, but I'm stoned, and I'm looking up at the trees that are blowing in the wind, right? And I'm thinking to myself, what would the turn trust for tree consciousness be? If that tree was awake, how would I know? What would the interface be? How could it tell me? That sort of thing. So Andrew Hessel is one of the most brilliant synthetic biologists in the universe, um, walks up. And I, it's the first time I've met him. I, I, mean, I didn't know. I sort of like... I. I think I'd seen him the day before and maybe I was introduced to him, but he walks up to the table and I look up at him. I'm just like, what do you think the Turing test for tree consciousness is? And on the back end of that conversation, it was his idea. He was the one who said, you should start a giant flow research project. Um, and I, if you do, I'll join your, I'll join your board and back you. And he was one of the first person who did it. And it came out of that conversation. So the Turing trust for tree consciousness oh. last tango was actually one of the first days of writing abundance and the inspiration for what became the flow genome project and now for me the flow research collective so. incredible incredible thank you for sharing that story funny story because uh, I, I was having a podcast with dr rupert sheldrake he had the ted talk that was banned um and he was talking about like just opening up science as an inquiry you know like instead of having a dogmatic sort of science it's just like a way of thinking and being um and he was talking about if the sun is alive why can't we just sort of have this conversation and just have a test like let's run an experiment and just see what's going on there i think what you're saying about the turing test for trees as well fits into like that like just that inquiry and that and that curiosity um something that's coming up for me the podcast way, you have to you have to know something like let, let, let before your readers think listeners think i'm crazy so here this the one thing you need to know about trees is this. We know trees exhibit empathy. They will grow towards strangers and away from relatives. They process information with all the same neurochemicals we process information with. They share 25% of our DNA. And if you give them a human anesthetic, you will knock them out. So what is tree consciousness is like tree neuroscience is a cutting edge, cool field at this point. And it's, you know, these are sticky questions. I say these are sticky questions up the chain into AI. Well, how do we know when it wakes up? And they're sticky down the chain, right? Everything we're learning about trees are saying, whoa, way more sentient than we knew. And that shouldn't be surprising because everything we've learned about animals is, whoa, way more sentient than we knew. And insects, way more sentient than we knew, right? And I mean, of course it's going to be this way um, mm. as our detection technology. Well, maybe it won't. Maybe we'll run in, Maybe rocks are actually unconscious. You know what I mean? Like there's, maybe there's a line somewhere or mm -hmm. maybe it's turtles all the way down. But <laughs> as our measure, every time our measurement technology gets a little bit better, we find that consciousness or agency, not exactly what we mean by consciousness, but agency, I'm making choices, I'm interpreting information, making decisions for myself. That gets, I mean, that happens at a cellular level, right? And the only difference between that and where we are is memory, right? Like when you're making decisions, you're, you're making choices. If you remember the decisions you made, right, the way those decisions get processed across the boards is emotion, right? That's how that information comes in and out. So the minute you one step above agency and add memory, that memory brings with it emotions in a weird way. So you have, you, you start looking at consciousness based on just a biological interpretation of what do we know consciousness does? And um, right, this is by the way, this is not my work. I'm quoting Stuart Kaufman, the great complexity scientist, um, and his fantastic book, Reinventing the Sacred. And this is this is some of his arguments that I'm sort of his book is really hard to read, so I've chances are I'm bastardizing them. There's 
probably something I missed. Yeah. <laughs> we should bet. But, but we're making anyways. it palatable. <laughs> we're doing our yeah. best to make it palatable. Um, yeah, there's for those tuning in that, you know, find this uh, novel, um, you can just look in Russian scientist test and they, they literally cut a cabbage. And this is like an old test they did a while ago. And they just hooked it up to electrodes and there's an electric like magnetic response to the to one cabbage sitting there that's not being dissected while another is being dissected. It's actually feeling that one is being dissected and it's actually going through this fury of like, ah, uh, definitely worth checking out. And then obviously the work around water in Japan as well, you know, water has consciousness. Okay, I got to tell you, nobody I know who's looked at that work thinks it's real. Oh, damn it. No. I have to tell you. I have to tell you. No, I, I, thank you. You know, Sheldrake is, Sheldrake is a difficult man for me because a lot of what he says, um, I think it's fantastic. And a lot of what he says, I think, why are you trying to put names on stuff we don't quite yet understand? Like, I think he's trying to make more of it. And to me, it's a question mark. But he makes interesting points about the stratification of science. The mm. stuff, the, the water stuff, nobody's been able to replicate those experiments. Everybody loves those experiments. Yeah. I've never seen, a lot of people have tried. I've never seen one person replicate them. So as far as I can mm. tell, that one's, that one's a little weird. Okay, good to know. Good to know. Thank you for grounding that. Um, so, curiosity point for me, uh, Inspired yeah, Evolution um, is called Inspired Evolution. So, evolution for me is like this, you know, whole thing. Um, there, there's a whole concept in the book around on the spectrum breeding with on the spectrum and this speciation thing. Let's talk. <laughs> well, so that is one of the questions, right? Like, what does it take to fracture the species? This mm. is, we live in a really weird time, right? Historically, and I mean from an evolutionary scale, we're not the only hominid species on Earth, right? There's lots of other human versions on Earth living simultaneously at different times. It just so happens, maybe it's because we humans killed them all off if you believe that we hunted everybody. One way or another, we're the only one left. But this is an anomaly. This is not the way things normally work. Um, we're clearly going to fracture the species and we're going to fracture it in a bunch of different directions, right? One of which, the one I point out about, um, is just a simple example. And this is just standard evolution, right? For years, people who were on the spectrum, people who were autistic, um, people who had Asperger's were outcasts, right? Now we're a whole lot more egalitarian in our views, right? And in Silicon Valley, because um, because of what uh, the spectrum does to your math skills in a lot of people, right? Those are whiz-bang talents. So the very first time, people who were on the spectrum, they were a social outcast, they were a lot. Suddenly, they're the talk of the town. They're at every party, and they're having sex with other people who are on the spectrum. These are not people who had every opportunity to procreate offered to them because there's stigmas attached with their um, – Disability is the wrong word because that talent is also the wrong word. I don't know what the right word is here, right? We can but their it. biology, let's just say their biology, right? Um, but that's change. So you are literally, if that goes on for three or four or five more generations, you can start to fracture the species, mm -hmm. right? Because you're you've got different mental biology producing that, right? And if you start, that's this is just how we breed dogs, right? I mean, like this, there's nothing going on here. Right? Yeah. But and, and by the way. Where this got interesting to me is there was a guy, you want a Nobel Prize, um, oh, God. The name, the term is technophysioevolution, and, and I, just, I just blanked his name. It'll come back to me. He's a Nobel laureate. But the idea was technology started to fracture evolution, right? And we know this, right? What? Birth rates, yeah. historically, for at all time, was roughly, we died at 25 years. Now, I can live till I'm 82 or 84. You can live even longer, Right. So that's a huge jump. That's a break in a standard evolutionary process that we've changed. Technology is doing more and more of that. It's speeding up. I, the empath, the center of the book, is a different question. And this is actually a really interesting flow question. So flow, kind of the ultimate state of, of, of performance that I, that I study so much, one of the things we know, and this is research that, that came out of the Harvard Development Project, among other things, is that it's not guaranteed, but it is true that flow over time tends to expand empathy, right? The more access you have to flow, the more act, the more empathy you have to feel. And it seems to be in flow, we take in more information per second and we pay more attention to that information. What may happen is we may be taking in more information and it, we'd be noticing stuff, thus feeling for stuff that we don't normally see. 
And what's interesting about flow is it's known not just to expand empathy to people, it's really good at expanding empathy to nature. So the empathy for all idea that's at the heart of the book is a flow-based trait. We also, so this is, that's one, park that idea for half a second. Here's something else that comes out of the Harvard Development Project, which is every generation um, seems to be more empathetic than prior ones. So millennials, yeah. when they test for empathy, are millennials at age 30 are far as empathetic as my generation gets to at age 40 or 50. And empathy, by the way, expands over time. As we get older, we become more empathetic because perspective widens. We start liking other people a little bit more. Um, as a general rule, this is adult development theory. This is just standard how adults development. There's lots of work here. But so we know adults become more empathetic over time. And we know that this species seems to be more empathetic over time. And we know that exposure to flow produces even more empathy. So the core of the book, this idea of an M tracker, right? Extreme empaths. What happens a couple of generations from now where you've got really high flow individuals who are more empathetic and they start breathing with really other high flow individuals, right? You've got mass amounts of empathy. Empathy is a different perception. No, not all that different from autism. It's just different information is coming in and being processed in a different way, right? It's just, a bit, but this is a biological shift from what we would call normal today, right? Even though there's no such thing as normal and that's nonsense, <laughs> but right. Like you, but you get my point. So like Absolutely. I talk about it in the book, um, but I also think it's an interesting opportunity, right? Could we actually breed a more empathetic species? Could we actually use genetic engineering to create a more like those are really weird, crazy questions, but they're questions that we're going to start to play with over the next 15, 20 years. They're not in the book. They're beyond the time frame of the book a little bit, but I think they're very close. Yeah, I think this is fascinating. And because um, for me, reading the book, it really highlighted that like the internet is lubricating, you know, um, these connections, you know, this cyberspace is helping us like the fact that we have technology, we're now like what is on the fringe, perhaps in terms of counterculture is guiding our evolution. And so there's a massive theme in the book as well. Let's go, let's go into that, you know. The counterculture whole, evolution. So yeah, two, yeah, things, yeah. two things to know here. Place to start is that, change of any kind, innovation, never happens in the center of a system. Doesn't Systems aren't built for it, right? The center is built for safety and security and stability, mm -hmm. right? So every place you see innovation, it's always on the edge. And in nature, we the term for this in, in, in kind of evolutionary theory is niche creation, right? In business, if you want to innovate, you create a skunk works. You don't try to innovate in the core of your company. You create a skunk <laughs> works and you move it outside the company. You hide it, right? Steve Jobs wants to create the first Macintosh, he doesn't try to do it inside of Apple. He rents a, a little story, flies a pirate flag over it behind the grocery store in Palo Alto and you know creates a skunk works. So in culture, this is counterculture, right? You don't innovate in the middle, you innovate at the edge. So if you want to know where culture is going, if you want to understand cultural evolution, you always want to watch counterculture. What has happened in counterculture in the past 15, 20 years is really weird. And so I grew up in Ohio, and I grew up in Ohio before, forget the internet, before cable TV got to Ohio. So culture got to us sort of, as I said, through magazines, but very delayed, right? And then sort of MTV and cable TV showed up, and you started to see other cultures a little bit. But then the internet happened, and what the internet does is it makes subculture visible for the very first time. So every, so first of all, this means if you're a you know, gay Pakistani teenager in a remote village, right? And 20 years ago, you'd be alone forever, man. Mm -hmm. You're just screwed. Mm -hmm. But today, you just get online, you can find millions of other people who are just like you. You're not a freak. You're just like everybody else online, right? So that, but what is happening in is, and this was, so that opening scene in the book uh, where I talk about what is known as the Pokemon subculture, that's real. And that was the first mashup subculture I've ever seen. So the Pokemon subculture is what happens. The internet makes subculture visible. So you start getting mashup subcultures. People start borrowing from all over the freaking place. And so uh, Pokemon subculture flourished with just like a 10-year window in Southern Chile, like super conservative Catholic Southern Chile. This is in a real Ohio. thing. Oh, this is a real thing. Right on the tip of Patagonia. And I was, so I'll, I'll tell you the full story. I'm in Koyaiki, which is the literally like, the ice fields end and there's a town and the town is Kayaki, right? So that's how far south you are. Very conservative. This is sort of the end of the, uh, the Pan-American Highway. And 
I see, I'm on the street and I see this girl, she's got to be 14 years old, she's a teenager. She's got crazy hair. So when I said they blended subcultures, they blend the, they blended emo hairstyles from so East Coast American emo haircuts, West Coast American hip hop gear, uh, Jap- Japanese gyru makeup, the really big sort of clown face makeup. Um, <clears throat> they've got their attitude. They borrowed like edgy Brit punk sneer. So that really like the Sex Pistols kind of a- punk attitude, which is a very specific thing. And then West Coast, um, like California bisexuality. And they rebelled by wet kissing strangers on the street. So I'm in Koyaike, I'm walking down the street and I see this 14 year old girl like rush across the street, grab this old man, he's gotta be in his seventies and start French kissing him for like 30 seconds and he drops and runs away. The guy almost has a heart attack and that's how they rebel. And it's it's a mashup subculture with a really creative, weird ass form of rebellion. Freaked the government out so much they stamped him out. They stamped him out. They got rid of him, basically. No, it was a scary story. They sicked white supremacists on them. And in like three years' time, this subculture just vanished. It was really freaky. I've never seen it happen before. Um, they just erased him. It's like they never happened. Um, though you can look him up online. And I don't, by the way, I still don't know why they're called a Pokemon subculture. As far as I can tell, they have nothing to do with the video game. Maybe it's something I, I could never discover. But yeah, so we're getting mashed up subcultures. And it's happening over and over and over and over again at much more extremes. And right now it's happening in subculture, right? But that's today. Tomorrow it's the mainstream. So you're going to get really weird. Mainstream is going to start to mash up in ways that that has never happened before. I think that's really, really interesting. Yeah, I think it's amazing. And the book has these references to June, Apocalypse Now, and Blade Runner to kind of meld and help guide that story a little yeah, bit better yeah. as well. And it's it's really, really awesome. Man, I in this moment, as I'm having this conversation with you, just like realizing just your – like. I'm just going to call it uh, efficacy for observation. Um, The thing that's really sitting with me at the moment is, you know, obviously taking the time to have these moments of observation and how well you take in that data input, but then also realizing just as a bit of a, like calling it for what I see, your input is also then having an impact on the people that are following the flow and that sort of stuff as well. So just realizing that, you know, just that there is a lot of uh, input and then also output in terms of the influence that is there. I don't know what you're talking about, but <laughs> I, I I love your work. I guess that's just what I'm trying to say. You know? Thank you so much, brother. I appreciate it. Um, so, you know, in the essence of I could talk to you all day, I want to know what is the most exciting thing? There are so many things packed into this book. What is the most exciting thing for you that's that's emerging? Um, wow, that's a really interesting weird ask question. So one of the things that's so, you know what, what's emerging. I wrote this book for a lot of reasons. One of the other reasons I wrote the book is I wrote a book that you mentioned at the start of the show called uh, a small furry prayer. Mm -hmm. So when I wrote a small furry prayer, there is, uh, there are more, there's way more technology and stuff than last tango, but from an empathy, environmental ethos, animal rights, because there's a lot of animal rights stuff uh, in this book as well. There's not a whole lot that's in Last Tango that's not in Small Furry. Small Furry is obviously, it's got to be a lot more conservative. I can be much more, because Last Tango, it's a novel. I don't have to agree with everything I'm saying. I can present things from all sides and it doesn't, right? You don't have to agree with everything because that's the freedom of the novel. And I had to agree with sort of everything in Last Tango. But I always, I always said the book was um, a really weird experience because on, on paper, it was a tremendous success. It was a bestseller. It was nominated for a Pulitzer. Um, big, sounds like a huge deal. And, I, and I'm very proud of those things, of course. And, and my publisher at the time was fantastic. They sent me on this giant 40-speed book tour. And, and the readings were packed. And this all sounds so fantastic. And like I'm bragging, but the weirdest thing about the whole thing is everybody who read the book was already an animal geek, was already an environmentalist. Mm. It was, I was preaching to the choir. So I had no, this was a book that I they really mattered. Like this was, sometimes you write books because you just think the stuff is super cool and you want to talk about it. Sometimes you write the book because you want to change the world a little bit, right? Mm. I wrote Small Furry because I wanted to change the world a little bit. And on the back end of it, I realized it was a total freaking failure. Like all the world, like the people who were already changed were reading the book and nobody outside of it was reading the book, right? So one of the reasons I wrote Last Tango was, hey, find a way to talk about the same issues, but to a huge audience, right? I mean, the audience for Last Tango is 
pretty much anybody who, who likes sci-fi thrillers and then some, right? Um, it's a big audience. And I figured, okay, it can go a lot wider than my last book. But here's what's shocking me is I wrote Last Tango 2000, or I wrote uh, Small Furry in 2010, I think is when it came out, maybe 9, 11, somewhere in there. Um, and these were, I, these were really cutting edge, radical ideas. It was very fringy. Now it's freaking mainstream and it's so mainstream that like, not only do I get that feedback, but somebody recently, uh, they read the book and they went, this is really funny. And they sent me, the UN has a new uh, report on biodiversity and the and animal rights and species extension. And it's the most, it, it updates the millennium biodiversity assessment. So it's the most complete ecosystem analysis anybody's done of the earth. And it's written by top scientists and top thinkers and the language there, you like, what are the problems? Like this idea of empathy for all that sounds so cutting edge, it's in the UN's document. I mean, it's not, they're not using empathy for all, but the same ideas are right there. I mean, in the, in, when I wrote small furry prayer and I'm talking about, Hey, humans cannot think of themselves as the Uber species on the earth. We're just one species out of many sharing it. Right. That was radical, crazy talk 10 years ago. It's the UN. It's like the UN global documents now. Like it's the UN. Like if that's the crazy thing is that in seven years, this idea of empathy for the environment and love, like that's what's so I'm really actually excited by it. Right. I'm like, Oh my God, we actually like, it didn't happen because of me. Right. Like certainly no, like I, I didn't, I didn't last time or a small furry bird did not play the part I wanted it to play, but it happened anyways. It was enough. There's enough, there was enough little, little steps like Imagine. that, maybe. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and suddenly that's, what's really exciting to me. It's that I'm not the only whack job out there going, Hey, wait a minute. Animals are people too. Right. <laughs> 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 yeah, 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 totally agree. And even in that note, like the I and I thing from Jamaica Airlines in the book, that is a thing now. It's like created and it's like the, the, the yeah, do you know what I'm talking oh, about? Oh, the I, the VR. <laughs> By the way, that's okay. This is this just, this so sucks. So I write that, I make it up. I totally make that up. And my editor, my a good friend Michael Warden, says, dude, you got to pad that one. Patent it right now today. It's so good and i was like man no it's not like there's plenty of by the time the book was out this was like i was halfway through the book six months later the book is coming out and somebody sends me a clip and no it already exists in the room somebody built it this is the thing man and i like i think that speaks to just how fast things are happening just how rapidly things like just the exponential, you know, we started the conversation talking about like linear and how like our minds can't like can only perceive that but the exponential nature of things that's the um, that's the title. Like last hang on cyberspace. What does it mean? People ask all the time. Yes. It's the end of something radically new. But what I'm really talking about is the end of the texture, the phenomenological texture of reality is a really technical term for how the world makes us feel, right? And what we don't understand is that tech or we may not understand as much as we should, is how much technology shapes how the world makes us feel. And I'll give you a really simple example that, uh, again, you're too young to understand, but it, I keep going back to the pre-internet era, era. But like in the 90s, right, there was a world we lived in that was pre-internet and it was small. I was in San Francisco in the pre-90s, right? This is a big city, a lot of culture, a lot, but it's still small. Suddenly the internet happens, what really changes? There's a new blue wire in your phone line, right? That's what changes. Right. But suddenly the world, how it feels, the space, the connectivity, the people in my universe, it's a lot bigger. Right. So technology changes the way the world it changes, the way reality feels to us. And we don't notice it, but it happens all the time. Last time on cyberspace, this whole idea is that the texture of reality is what's going to change so much over the next five years. All this stuff we're talking about, what people don't get is that this whiz bang stuff is going to become normal, right? There's that holographic menu in the mm. in the book, right? Which is a big deal to me, not because I think holographic menus are a big deal. They're not a big deal. Today- It's just the VR hotel selection thing. Hotel selection, right? The, like today, these are whiz-bang technologies. Tomorrow, it's going to be how you go into a restaurant and order dinner, right? Instead of cheap plastic sushi, <laughs> right? You're going to get holographic sushi, right? That's the difference. Today, it's like, oh my God, tomorrow, it's just 
average. It's just the, but it's going to feel different. And that's what I'm interested in is like, there's this feeling. One of the reasons I wrote last time was I sort of wanted to say goodbye to the world as we knew it. You know what I mean? Because the texture of the world, the way it feels to us is going to be really, really different. Um, there's not really a term for the, the idea of the, like the, the nostalgia you feel for a, a life that's not even your own, but that's sort of like, that's sort of what this book is trying to get at. I think. Amazing. Stephen, even as, um, you know, as you're sharing what's coming in for me is as someone that's like a deep meditator and someone that's a structural engineer that, you know, is enthused by architecture, my whole journey is about inner space, outer space. And that's why I love psychology because it's like the nexus of the two. And even what you're sharing, I remember when you introduced the port in New Mexico and just like interstellar travel, just like I, I could feel just the book expand into like this whole new space. Um, just and realizing that our psychology, what you just meant. Yeah, and then we become a multi-planetary yeah, like how, we, yeah. that changes, right? <laughs> That's going to happen in the next 10 years. I mean, we're multi-planetary is an exaggeration, but we're going to start the Bigelow Space Hotel is going up, right? In a, in a year or two, Virgin Galactic thinks that flying flights by 2022 or something along those lines. I could have the date wrong, but like that's space tourism. Um, that's when that opens up, Right. Elon Musk wants to have us on Mars by 2030. Say he's off by a decade. You know what I mean? <laughs> We're about to become a multi-planetary species. It's in the next 10 years. It's in our lifetime. And that's going to psychically change us. Mm -hmm. And in ways that we don't, like, I don't know how it's going to change me. Totally. I've never been a multi-planetary species. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't know, man. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Man, Stephen, I just, you know, I could, oh, I, I think I've said it already. But love you, love your work, love the book. Um, I really want to take this moment right here and now just to thank you for not just being here and sharing your time and energy today, but um, also just consistently showing up as the individual that you have in life to being so informed, so well, like just a repertoire of everything that's in there for us to have this deep, yummy conversation to be able to share with the audience and the listeners today. And obviously, thank you for today as well. My pleasure. Thank you for saying those things. My ego appreciates <laughs> <laughs> but you're nice and humble, so I can say that to you. Um, any last things you want to share with the audience before we dial out? I, I, people put me on the spot. Like, I never know <laughs> what to say here. What's the best way to connect with Stephen Kotler? <laughs> StephenKotler.com. S-T-E-N-K-O-T-L-E-R.com. Perfect. Um, absolutely. And check out Last Hangout, please. Yeah, please do. Amazing read, really informative. And just, again, just commending just how easy it is to broach all these big, deep themes that we've discussed. Like we've talked about truth and all these like massive things, speciation, like Turing tests for trees, all these amazing things presented so fluidly. So like you can't stop turning the pages, but amazing work. Thank you again. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. That was really good. Yo. Yeah, that was really good. Thank you. No, I, gotta, I, I, I will come back anytime, man. Yeah, you do not fuck around. <laughs> <laughs> that does not happen in my, that's not my everyday experience. Uh, but like big up. So uh, appreciate it. So appreciate it. Thank you, man. And I thank got you. to talk about the like, to like the new journalism thing i you know i love those things oh yeah. dude just the whole sub like right. subjectivity and reality yeah that was like that's a massive curiosity point for me and uh, like even with and i wasn't you know i'm not like tooting your horn when i say flow has completely changed my life like i was an instructional engineer and i changed my life based on you read and you wrote uh, in stealing fire like people have started to orchestrate their life around flow and i was like toot your own horn much literally that was my approach when i read it and i put the book down and then now my truth is yeah like conversation is where i find my flow and i'm living my whole life around it i'm a speaker i'm a trainer i'm a podcaster as long as i'm an orator i'm happy and i've literally created my whole life around that so yeah man like That's totally the, right. it's, yeah, by the way it's i mean i i mean all i'm doing is training org organizations businesses to do yeah. the same thing right like i mean I, i'm training individuals too but like um that's like it, there's really no other way. To, I don't know. Maybe there's another way to do it, right? Like maybe there's a better way to hack flow than do it this way. But the only thing I've ever seen that actually works is people who take the 22 triggers and say, okay, these are the center of my life. Everything I do is built around these triggers and generating this take. Because then once I do that, everything else sort of works. Fits in. Um, 
fits yeah. in. And yeah, like my humble perspective is like I do a lot of one-on-one coaching and I, I pretty much start with the phrase like you, we are the universe looking in on itself. If you can get on board with me with that, we can we have a potential to coach. I have a potential to coach you. If not, then I can't really do that. And the the, the philosophy that I've got is that if because we are the universe looking in on ourselves, that's where I flow emerges from. What I always say, yeah. there's somebody that you say it that way. I, what I say is, as far as I can tell, all we are is a perspective. And what I mean is all we are is the universe asking itself a question about itself. Yo. Right? And I, I, always, I always kind of feel like I, I think the universe might be conscious, but I have, I'm absolutely convinced the universe has no idea why it's here. <laughs> and, that, and that's all we are, right? Is the universe's way of saying, does this work? You're a strategy, right? That's all you, you technically are. Totally. Strategy. I totally agree with you. And that's why like there are some things that I believe that are super fundamental to the experience, which are like curiosity in itself, you know, like just curiosity. Because the universe, like you said, maybe it doesn't know why it's here, but it's got these many perspectives and curiosity is so innate to our like the other thing is that curiosity, if you're feeling curiosity, you can't really feel fear. Literally the same signal. Absolute both more epinephrine. So curate animals, most mammals, like cows, for example, can't feel fear and curiosity at the same time, they will literally flip back and forth. Um, uh, humans can feel both at once, but it's really hard. So chances are, if you're feeling curiosity, you're not feeling fear. It's enormous. Ah, brilliant. Yeah. Biological yeah. advantage. Yeah, one of the best ways to deal with fear is get curious about the shit that scares you. Yo, what a hack. Love it. Love it. It's literally the same, but the biology is the same. So yeah. like, you're just fooling the system using it. Your advantage. All right, man. I got to jump. This is so love you. Thank you. I totally appreciate it. Hey, tribe. Thanks for tuning in to another fun, enlightening episode of the Inspired Evolution. I've been loving all the feedback and personal stories of love, uh, health, and growth. Your feedback and stories are incredibly welcome. The easiest way to connect with me is via my website, which is www.amrit-sandu.com. You can leave me a message or a comment. It's one of my highest values to connect, so I love to connect and love to hear from you. You can also find me on Facebook, Amrit Sandu. And if the content has been resonating with you, you can help the Inspired Evolution out in a big way by liking the YouTube channel, subscribing to the Inspired Evolution, or the Facebook page, like that please, at the Inspired Evolution, or by leaving a review on iTunes if you're on an Apple device. And also, if the Inspired Evolution episodes are inspiring an evolution within you, or you can feel the inspiration is valuable for your team to evolve to the next level, you can head on over to www.amrit-sandu.com to see how the Inspired Evolution can help you and your team thrive. Much love, tribe. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.